1: Welcome to All The Wiser, I'm Kimmy Kolb. All The Wiser is a one for one podcast. For every inspiring interview you hear, we donate $2,000 to charities around the world. I believe in the power of storytelling to inspire us all to think differently about the world around us. So I've combed the country for some of the most jaw dropping stories you have ever heard. People who have been to the brink and back Stories of survival against all odds and whose lives have been changed in unthinkable ways. Welcome back to All the Wiser. I hope everyone enjoyed and or survived the holiday season. We are so excited to be back with you in this new year and new decade and to share dozens of fresh, inspiring stories. Our first interview of the year is with Paula and Jonathan Williams. Eight years ago, Paul Williams was a prominent evangelical pastor preaching to millions around the world. In a brave, courageous, and life-altering act, Reverend Williams came out to the world as a transgender woman. Paul was fired from his job and shunned by thousands as he transitioned to a woman named Paula. During this exact period, her son Jonathan was starting his own evangelical church— And his world would be equally rocked by her transition. Jonathan openly shares with us his long and winding road to acceptance, losing and rediscovering his faith, and his commitment to loving his father when his father is no longer a man. Paula shares the moment when she decided to live authentically, the painful and ultimately beautiful road ahead, and her unique and insightful experience from having lived as both a man and a woman. Theirs is a story of faith, forgiveness, and what it means to be a family. Here's today's interview with religious trailblazers Paula and Jonathan Williams. Paula and Jonathan, thank you for being here today on All the Wiser. And I have to share, you are our very first time having two guests uh, um, at the same time in an interview. And I am grateful that it's you guys and really excited to have this important and inspiring conversation with you.
0: Well, you might decide it's the last time you want to have two people.
1: (laughs) Who knows? <laughs> it's very pot the first and last.
0: No, um, thanks
2: so much. I love I love the work you're doing. So this is exciting to be able to do this.
1: Well, thanks thanks to you both again. So I want to start, and I ask this of all our our guests, to have them introduce themselves. How would you introduce yourself to our audience?
0: Sure. I'm Paula Stone-Williams. I am the teaching pastor at Left Hand Church in Boulder County, Colorado, and I'm a speaker around the country and, um, well, the world at this point on subjects related to gender equity. That's the major part of my current life. Jonathan.
2: I'm Jonathan Williams. I started a church called Forefront Brooklyn in 2012. And we are one of the uh, very few LGBTQIA affirming churches that are non denominational in America. And uh, on top of that, I have a book called She's My Dad, uh, which Paula contributed to. And uh, that came out last year.
1: I want to go back to Jonathan, your childhood, and Paula, you as a father of young kids. Jonathan, how would you explain the backdrop of growing up
2: my yeah my growing up was idyllic you know in in my mind anyway uh, my father and my relationship was was really strong, and I think it was a bit stereotypical uh you know baseball in the front yards, going to Mets games, uh lots of family vacations uh, yeah i, I think uh, I think when I look back on my childhood, it was just like uh you know, uh, very, very privileged. uh, And I enjoyed every bit of it. We lived on Long Island. So there's a lot of water involved, a lot of beach. um, And so really when I was a kid, uh, I I think back fondly uh, and very rarely do I see, oh man. Yeah. Very rarely do I see what was about to come, (laughs) I guess. Yeah. But uh, as in terms of normal, it was as normal as normal could be.
1: And Paula, how would you describe your life at that time? The experience of being a father to Jonathan and and all your kids. What are your greatest memories of that time?
0: You know, I had known from the time I was three or four years of age that I was transgender. And I was avoiding transitioning for all the reasons. Um, back then, it was just unheard of. Plus, I was a part of a conservative religious community. And I was never comfortable But I wasn't one of those people who hated being a male. I just knew I wasn't one. There was a period in my life, though, where I was really comfortable as a male. And it was the period where I was parenting. Those were the years that felt the most natural to me. And I still don't know exactly what to make of that. That time period... I would say my gender dysphoria, which is the DSM-5 name for being transgender, I would say it was on a back burner at the time. It it was something that was there every day, but it wasn't all that troublesome because I adored at that point um, being a father to my three children.
1: And I... You know, I read, which I thought was fascinating, and I'm glad I read it because I was going to ask the question, um, that this sort of commonly asked question is, um, did you feel comfortable in your body or did you feel trapped in your body? And your answer to that, I think, I think was really insightful and that it was more that you felt you were robbed of a choice. Um, Can you explain that? Because I think it's, I think it's important. There was always a strong inner
0: sense that my body did not connect with my soul or my being, and yet I did not hate being a male. I was relatively comfortable. I think we're all on a spectrum from one extreme to another. And I just said in my most recent TED Talk that um, that I live in the borderlands and always will, that there are things a cisgender woman knows that I will never know, that I feel rather like an expat from a foreign land, that I'm comfortable in the world of women, but it's not really totally home to me. I think I'll always feel a little bit in between, kind of in the liminal space. I certainly prefer living as a female to what life was like living as a male. But I um, but I was not one of those who felt strongly that I was in the wrong body. I, there was no suicidal ideation when I was a child. There was just a longing.
1: What was your experience of sort of boyhood as is- puberty and dating as you started to grow into those older years, the adolescent and teenage years?
0: Yeah, I'm working on a, a book right now. And um, actually, we're just writing about that last night, realizing how uh, ordinary my childhood was. I, I think the time of the day when I was most often thinking about being in the wrong gender was when I went to bed at night. And I would pray most nights that I would wake up the right gender the next morning. And when I didn't, uh, I wasn't a person to waste a lot of time getting about the day. It was more a sense of, okay, well, maybe somehow, some way that eventually will happen. It didn't really become a problem for me until junior high. And then all my friends who were female had their bodies changing in ways that mine was not, and mine was changing in ways that I was definitely not comfortable with. For me, the arrival of testosterone was uh, never a welcome uh event in any way shape or form it it seemed like an intrusion into a body that did not want it
1: do you remember the first time that you felt transitioning was feasible that that being your authentic self you know was there one moment where you took the first step forward your internal leap of faith
0: you know it's kind of ironic because i'm a pastor but um There are a lot of times that that I don't think I'm particularly religious and not all that comfortable in the concept of God, as most people think of God. And I say that to preface the fact that for me, it came as a really strong call. Was that a call from God, as somebody might explain God? I don't know. Was it a call from deep within my own soul? Not sure where it came from, but it was a call. And it came at the strangest of moments in the final season of the television show Lost. There comes a point where um, the protagonist of the show, uh, Jack, if you're a Lost fan, uh, realizes he's been called by God to die. And uh, for me, that was a strong sense of, oh, my God. Goodness, i I've been called to transition. I'm going to have to transition, and it's going to be awful. And I screamed and yelled at God all night long. Who the blank do you think you are to call me to this? I'm going to lose everything. My family's going to struggle. So, but it was a strong sense of call. And as I often say, you reject a call at your own peril.
1: And how? Where were you in your life at this time? Both. Personally, your family, and professionally, your career?
0: Yeah, I was the CEO of a, a large nonprofit. I was also the editor at large of a national magazine. I was the host of a television show. I was on the preaching team of two mega churches and spoke regularly in lots of other big, large churches. So I was really at the height of my career uh, as an evangelical leader.
1: How old were you? Oh, old enough. <laughs> old enough to know better, um, Jonathan. How old were you at this time?
2: You know, I was in my early thirties uh, when this was happening. I I had I just started uh, the church that I pastor now, uh, and I started this church um, through through the evangelical organization that my father was still a part of, and it was an organization that was uh, not affirming of my father's transition in any way. They they didn't know about it. So for me, I, I literally was about three weeks into uh, the start of this church. And then my father's like, well, I'm going to transition. And I'm like, well, if people find out in this organization that, that planted my church, not only will you lose your job, but there's a chance that they'll ask me what I think and I'll support you. And then I'm going to lose my job too. And, and this thing uh, won't ever get off the ground. It, it will die before it even begins. So it was a time of, uh, of great anxiety for me. That's for sure.
1: Yeah, you were sort of birthing this dream. And what I I want you um, both to share with me and Paula, maybe start with you, the conversation that you had and and your thoughts leading up to that and your emotions, um, what that conversation was. And then Jonathan, you can share the experience on your end.
0: You know, I had never told anyone beyond uh, my spouse and my best friend and my therapist um, that I dealt with gender dysphoria because I was pretty sure I was going to be able to make it through life without transitioning. And that's not exactly news that you share with other people uh, because it is, in fact, profoundly disturbing uh, to their lives. So once once I knew that there was a good chance I was going to have to transition, I knew that the first people that I had to be told were the children. And I um, I knew it would be devastating. I don't think I knew just how devastating it would be. I mean, I've been living with it for decades, and they didn't even know what it was. And so for them, uh, it just came out of nowhere. There was nothing about my previous life that would have indicated that I was transgender. I I was kind of like your typical alpha male uh, into sports and all those kinds of things. There was nothing about me that was uh, what you would define as effeminate. Uh, So it really was quite a shock to them.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, Paula called me, or Paul called me at the time and uh, and said, hey, I, I need to fly out to New York and let you know something. And, you know, we talk every day. So at, at that point, I'm like, just tell me over the phone, whatever it is. And, uh, and Paul was like, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm, I'm going to fly to New York and let you know. And so I sat there for 24 hours trying to figure out what was so important that Paul was going to fly out and, and talk to me about this. And like, I say this all the time and it's true. I settled on insurance fraud. I was like, well, I bet you my dad committed insurance fraud. <laughs> yeah,
0: that, 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 that's still, I
2: never quite get that.
0: That's so specific. It really you is. Know?
2: Like it was this really specific thing that I thought you were coming to tell me that, oh, I'm going to go to jail for like three months. And I was going to be like, this is terrible, but we'll get through it. And then, uh, and then when my dad said, I'm, I'm going to be transitioning, that was the last thing the last thing on my mind, something, you know, this is before Caitlyn Jenner, before the TV show transparent, you know, it wasn't popular. Um, it wasn't in our social consciousness at the time. And so, you know, I'm like, well, first of all, what is this? And then after that, I, I just went into straight denial, which meant I accused my father of not being well, of, of, uh, being, you know, in a place where they had lost touch with reality and so on and so forth. Uh, just trying to grasp at straws as to why this might be happening.
1: And Paula, leading up to that, the flight out, the anticipation of the conversation, what were you experiencing emotionally? And what do you think, if there was, the the answer or the reaction that you were looking for from Jonathan, or hoping for?
0: I don't think I really understood just how much different it was going to be for him than it was for my girls. I don't think I understood how much um, a son in many ways patterns his life after his father. That's who taught him what it is to be a man. And um, for the girls, there was there was more of an immediate acceptance. You know, we want to do whatever we can uh, to help. Uh, later on for them was the time they had to take their leave um but for Jonathan I was shocked surprised when it was so swift that he just kind of disappeared and was was pretty angry. Our family was always a family that you know expressing our feelings was encouraged. So to have my kids um angry with me uh, was nothing unusual. Um but this of course was a whole different level.
2: It was it was hard because uh, I think internally and personally the objective idea of being trans was something that I was, I was probably okay with, you know, uh, and thinking back on that, I think the issue for me was that, you know, because we had such a close relationship because we talked almost every day, you know, I, I go through four hours, uh, four years of therapy to, 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 be able to say that my dad in some ways was my God. Right. And so when that's the case and, and your God comes and says that everything that you, that they've told you is now changing and it's all different. Uh, it definitely sent me into a bit of a tailspin. And so, you know, I start asking questions like, okay, those times in the front yard when we were playing catch, was that me playing catch with my dad or was that a woman dressed in drag? And, and if that's the case, is my whole entire childhood a lie? And, and those are the things I'm starting to think about, uh, you know, at night before I go to sleep, the things that keep me awake, that kind of stuff.
1: Where were you when you had this conversation physically? Where, where were you together?
2: <laughs> we were in my apartment
1: okay and in New York, it sounds like, yeah,
2: I live in Brooklyn, yeah, so we were in my apartment in brooklyn my my wife was there, my children were there, uh my children weren't there for the announcement uh for my dad talking to us about the transition, um but regardless yet yeah, my my mom flew in, my sisters flew in, so it was it was a whole family affair that that happened,
1: and Paula, did you have the support of your wife at the time and Jonathan, your mother and transitioning and and being open and honest with the kids
0: you know growing up in a fundamentalist world uh, you have a lot of um, misconceptions and one of them is that if in fact you have issues related to your sexual identity or your gender identity that if you get married those will be fixed and so I was pretty sure that marriage would fix me. And when it didn't, I thought, hmm, probably ought to tell her. So it really was not that long after we married that I told her. And of course, at that point, nobody really knew anything. There were no books in the library. There, There was just no real knowledge known. The language was transsexual. But they're just neither one of us really knew much about it. So we just thought it was something we would have to deal with, and we would deal with it as time went on, and that it would not really be that disruptive to our lives. So she had known all along. I began to realize it was a real possibility that I was going to have to transition um, and told her, and where I was standing in the, um, in the living room, looking up the stairs of the split level to the bedroom level, and saying to her, no, I, I actually, I'm afraid that I'm a transsexual. She was extremely supportive, I think because she saw how much I struggled with it over all the years and finally came to realize that um, if I did not transition, I might not survive. And so she was really very, very supportive.
1: Well, she sounds really incredible. I'm, I'm, I'm happy that, uh, Jonathan, that was your mom and, and Paula, she was your wife at the time.
0: That's right. Yeah, she's a really good human
2: being. She is a pretty great human being. She's still my mom, too. So that's a good thing.
1: <laughs> yes. That's Oh, that's true. I put that in the past tense. <laughs> that she is that she is your mother. Um someday my kids may you refer to me in the past tense just cuz they're annoyed. Um so I'm interested, Jonathan, clearly you're rocks by this conversation. What are the days and weeks that follow for you in processing this, this information from your father?
2: Yeah, it, it was incredibly difficult to process because I couldn't tell anybody. Um, my whole world, uh, my whole church world was was my dad's world as well. So I couldn't talk to people in, in my uh, church community. I couldn't talk to any of my staff about this. Uh, so I, I was doing a ton of the processing on my own and by myself, uh, which is not what I would recommend to anybody. And, uh, and I would just say a lot of bad habits formed. I think they're stereotypical bad habits, like drinking too much and then crying and, uh, and then deep depression, not wanting to get out of bed. And, you know, at the same time I have this church and I'm, I'm preaching every Sunday. So uh, I've always tell the story about how I'd be upstairs, you know, I'd be upstairs crying before church, like what is going on? Who am I? And and who is my father? And is this something I should even be doing? It's something my dad did. And now my dad's no longer my dad. And I just cry over that. And then 10 minutes before church would start, I'd wipe tears and put on a happy face, go downstairs, preach, do all that, and then go home and then sleep for four hours. I, I just couldn't handle any of it. Um, I, you know, it, it sometimes feels selfish to say it, but her transition in so many ways created identity, uh, a crisis of identity for myself uh, that that took a while to get through and, and was difficult.
1: And what would you say the, the layers of emotions you were processing? I imagine there was many.
2: So anger was the biggest one, uh, being really angry. And in my anger uh later on later on when when people started to find out, you know people would come to me and they would say so what 's going on and and what they really wanted was permission. they wanted permission to be angry with my father or to to say oh i don't i don't have to have uh, i don't have to be in a relationship with with my father any longer and so they would come to me. And I would say, no, you're absolutely right. Like, you know, what, what Paula is doing is ridiculous and, and I don't agree with it and I don't understand it. And so if you feel the same way, that's okay. Uh, and so it was anger and then it was like, um, well, conspiracy might be too strong of a word, but then other people in her life who were also angry conspiring together to be angry together. Uh, I regret that part of it. But at the same time, I can't deny that, you know, it's it's one of the powerful stages of mourning. So I spent a lot of time there, uh, in that place of mourning and my, you know, my wife, my kids, my coworkers, my staff, they saw a marked difference in me. They they were like, what's going on with you? You're not, you're not you. You're not who you usually are. You're, you're you're short tempered. You don't have the same capacity for, uh, creativity. You're, you know, walking, walking like a zombie through life. And, and, uh, they were probably right. Um, that That's what the anger did to me, for sure.
1: And Paula, you spoke to the fact that your career was um, as as a leader in the evangelical conservative community. What was the reaction with your colleagues and, and peers and community when you shared openly with them?
0: Well, for the most part, I was instantly ostracized. I probably knew... I don't know, 5,000 people by name uh, from that world. And it's a fairly insular world. And I was at a national leadership level. And I think to date, I've heard from about 60 in a nice way. Basically, those folks were gone, just gone. And, um, And I've never heard from any of them again, except, like I said, about 60 or so have written me in a nice way, basically to say, Um, We're sorry that that we had the attitudes we had, but they have no interest in having a continuing relationship with me.
1: I can't imagine that level of hurt and anguish. What did that rejection in the face of your courage feel like?
0: Well, I felt like when I came out, um, I thought, well, you got one or two options here. Either you have to assume that you're wrong about your understanding of what it means to be transgender and that it's not a moral issue, or you have to assume that Paul was not a person of character. And I just made the assumption that they would all know that I was a person of character, and so they would re-examine their attitudes about what it means to be transgender. Um, That is not how it came down. And for me, that was devastating. I knew I would have to leave my work and I was prepared to leave it in stages and um, not to be public about what was going on. But then when I came out to the CEO, um, within a week, I I was gone um, and lost um, all of my pension, which probably was worth uh, upwards of a million dollars or so. I didn't see that coming. Uh, It it was uh, devastating. It was really, really awful. That was the only time for me that there was actual suicidal ideation. Gender dysphoria is unfortunately, as a diagnosis, has with it a 41% suicide attempt rate. Wow, Uh, And even post-transition, there's a 35% suicidal ideation rate. And a lot of people will try to equate the two and say, see, it doesn't really work to transition. But pretty much all the factors driving post-transition suicidal ideation are related to how a world responds to the person. So if you have 100 people who transition, 92 are actually happy in their new being. They're happy in their new body. Only eight are not. So then why does this uh, 8% of those who transition regret transitioning? It's because of how they're received by the culture at large. The three biggest indicators of post-transition suicidal ideation are loss of family, friends, job, and um, means of of earning a living. The second is the uh, uh, internalization of transphobia, that you hear what the culture says and the culture can be pretty awful. Uh, and the third is if you do not pass in your new gender, if you are seen always as someone who is transgender, that is particularly an issue for transgender women. So transgender women tend to have more issues with not passing than transgender men. In my case, uh, I was rather shocked, being as tall as I am, that passing ended up not being a problem. So for me, the bigger problems were loss of my entire career. I mean, all of that. And uh, and all of the friends uh, that that was devastating, and then you kind of can't help but internalize that transphobia.
1: And what um, you're both clearly leaders, and have built your career in leadership um, in in your faith and your religion. What is the reckoning there, and I imagine the questioning of of your religious communities. And, and what that, what that meant.
2: Yeah. I mean, I, I, when Paula talks to me about all the people that have left her, uh, you know, I always say to her, I, I say, I don't think it was about your character at all. It was about the, the religious community. And in the religious community, unfortunately, what we've done, especially in American Christianity, is we've decided that there are four or five things that you need to be for or against in order to get to heaven. And one of the things that you have to be against in American evangelical Christianity in order to get to heaven is you need to be against the LGBTQIA community. So when Paula came out, it wasn't about her character. It wasn't about who she was. It was about the fact that she threatened their eternal existence, according to American evangelical Christianity. And so that's a really, really tough environment um to deal with when you are when you hold so fast to you know belief that you have to be for these three things and against these three things, and we know what they are it's the it's the gay the quote unquote gay agenda it's abortion, and all the rest. be against those things so you can go to heaven um and so in that uh I know that I was privately always affirming even before uh my father came out. Uh, but I was privately, I was privately because we had funding from a bunch of churches, uh, that were, that were paying my salary. And I knew that if I would, would become publicly affirming of Paula or publicly affirming of the entire LGBTQIA community, that, uh, that I would lose that funding, lose my way of, uh, of making money, uh, supporting my family, etc. So it wasn't so much of a reckoning of, is this right or is this wrong? I always believed it to be right or wrong, or I'm sorry, I always believed it to be right. My apologies. But, for me, it was at what point am I willing to give up some of my privilege in keeping quiet uh for the sake of the greater good it, it that was the reckoning that I went through uh and that was difficult, just uh knowing that the second I would come out publicly in support of not only my father but everyone else like her that uh that we would lose a lot of people and hundreds of thousands of dollars so that that's what it that that was the reckoning for me
1: and is that what happened
2: that's exactly what happened, yeah, so we came out uh, we came out as a church as, uh, publicly affirming and inclusive of the LGBTQIA community, which, which basically means that we not only would affirm, uh, that community and say they're made in the image of God, but we would do same sex weddings. Uh, and we would do, uh, we would hire, uh, and have staff members who identified, uh, as LGBTQIA. So it was a big deal. And yeah, we lost, uh, We lost in the hundreds of thousands of dollars, and we lost about half of our congregation, and I always say it was the best decision we ever made.
1: Awesome. I love that. And Paula, during the time leading up to this, and and then I want to get back to you rebuilding the, the beautiful relationship that you guys have today, how would you describe the weight of bearing this secret? Well,
0: I wouldn't wish that on anybody. Um, um, It's is—it's private. I actually like to draw a distinction between secret and private. I think when we think of secret, we tend to assign a moral value and things that are a secret are things that are morally suspect. And to me, this was always just private. To me, it was never uh, a moral issue. I knew that I was created this way. And so to me, how could that be a moral issue? It's what I chose to do with it. That would be where its morality would find its expression. So for me, there there was incredible weight with it. It was, um, I mean, I, I I dealt with what I I probably would classify as moderate depression, which is actually pretty significant depression when it's classified as moderate. I was uh, I was in therapy twice a week for um, 100, 100 years, I mean, just trying to work through it and initially thinking that maybe um, I could somehow rid myself of this. But of course, it's not something that goes away uh, anytime ever. For me, it was helpful not to... Um, Not to take all that personally what was happening in the religious world. Where no enemy exists, we create one. When you take a look at much of Western world, well, really much of any culture in the world, and certainly in religious culture, these are patriarchal cultures. So, where are you likely to create enemies? You're likely to create enemies in areas that, if you are in a position of leadership, would not affect your own personal comfort. So, if you take a look at the very patriarchal evangelical world, and you take a look at their two favorite social issues, they are issues that cost those male leaders nothing. It's not a personal issue for them to have to deal with abortion, and 97% of them aren't LGBTQIA, so uh, for them, it's easy to take a stand on these issues. There's no personal price that must be paid, as there would be if they took a stand on uh, racial prejudice or uh, economic inequality. Uh, These are things that would cost them something personally. So seeing what was happening at that larger macro level to me was very, very helpful and took a lot of the weight off um, post-transition of the personal attacks because I realized, yeah, this is actually not about me. It's about something much, much larger and much, much deeper into the warp and the woof of the species.
1: Jonathan, what was your path to forgiveness and acceptance? Was there a specific moment you you remember? Because the relationship was very fractured after this initial conversation, is that if I have that right?
2: Yeah, it it was. Um you know, it, it was about me. Um I, I think much of it w- were was what I had to work through. I had to work through figuring out who I was. Um you know, I I I used to say that, uh, you know, I was, uh, I was Paul's child or or Paul was my dad and that's how I was known. And so to have your father attached to you in that sense, um, you know, creates an identity, uh, not separate from him. And then when he came out and I realized that I didn't have that anymore, the question becomes, who am I? And it took me years to, to really figure out who I was in this whole process. I think I'm still probably going through it in some ways. Um, but really when I started to figure it out, what I realized was there was a bunch of different ways I was attached to my father that weren't healthy. And so I talk about this conversation that we had, uh, when Paula came to visit and we were down by the Brooklyn bridge and I literally said everything. I said, you know, I'm really upset that when I was 16 years old, you grounded me for this thing that didn't even happen. You know, like I I got that deep and, uh, and said, this these are the things I need to tell you in order to differentiate myself from you. And once Paula heard that and she heard it well, uh, I felt like that was a big turning point. It was a place for me where I could I went, okay, now I can have a relationship with this woman um because I have differentiated myself from my father. And even saying it now, it still sounds kind of odd. Uh it's it's uh, letting go of somebody who's no longer there when they're standing right in front of you. <laughs> but uh but that's what needed to happen in order for me to to forgive her. Uh and so yeah, so I would say really in the past 3 years, 4 years since that's happened, uh we're continually building this relationship over again. Um not sure it'll it'll ever be the same and I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that's probably a good thing because of the work that that I had to go through in, in terms of her coming out.
1: And Paula, I would think in the arc of all of this that courage came to you in layers and phases. Your physical transformation, you know, if that is true, how were those brave acts? I would call them different for you. So, first sharing, um, and then the the physical transformation.
0: My life had pretty much always been um, what you might expect of a typical successful white, well educated American male. Everything turned out well for me, and so um, it was quite an awakening uh, to have things not turn out well when I transitioned, but I did bring all those years of privilege with me. And that builds a certain reservoir, I think, of strength uh, that you have. You end up being far stronger than you realize, and I um, turned out to, sure enough, be a lot stronger than I realized, because this is not a journey for the faint of heart. It is extremely difficult.
1: Do you remember... I'm sure you do. What it was like the first time you looked in the mirror and saw Paula looking back at you.
0: Yeah, no, I actually don't have a memory of that. Isn't that something?
2: I I remember very well. That was a that was a big deal for me. It was uh we it was when I met you for the first time and you looked nothing like Paul at all. I I wouldn't have recognized you otherwise and i was like this person is an absolute stranger who are you and it was uh, it was a really really profound moment for me so yeah something i still think about
0: yeah for me it was such a gradual process that um i don't i can't really say exactly when um was the moment when i looked in the mirror and thought oh yeah this this works I certainly do now. I mean, there's never a day that I look in the mirror and think, no, this isn't who you are. It is, it is, in fact, who I am. And it's not who I was before.
1: And Jonathan, you've shared some stories that I, I think are great and funny about your young kids um, seeing Paula for the first time. And I think... The world view through the eyes of a child is always, you know, they're, they're not yet impacted by society and, and the way that we are. Can you share that experience the first time your, your kids saw Paula?
2: Yeah, absolutely. We, uh, my wife and I, we told our kids that, that grandpa was going to come and visit and that, and that grandpa, uh, wouldn't look like grandpa anymore. That grandpa was going to look like a, a, a woman now, you know, we said, you, you know, she's, She's going to look like a girl. And so they asked questions about what that meant. And we told them that, you know, she identifies as a girl now. And, and so she'll be wearing uh, women's clothes and, and she'll look very different. And, and they asked why. And we said, because for a long time, this is what grandpa has felt. You know, for, for most of grandpa's life, she's felt like she's a girl. And my oldest daughter said, So basically, you're just telling me that grandpa is going to look on the outside the way that she feels on the inside? And I said, Yeah. And my oldest went, okay <laughs> it was it was that simple, and so then when when they finally uh when they finally met their grandpa for the first time, uh you know Paula walked through the door, and the girls were coloring and uh and they were you know they were a little nervous it's the first time you're meeting somebody new, like i just said she's she's a bit unrecognizable, so uh I said hey say say hello to grandpa and and they both just sat there, and then finally my little one, who was four or five at the time she said grandpa do you still have a penis <laughs> and we i mean it like we erupted it was like it was hilarious really really funny and like the kids both got up and hugged paula and then um i i'll, I'll never forget they got press on nails that day so they were like grandpa grandpa come back we want to show you the press on nails and that was it it was from that point forward it was they were okay um and i always say they they gave her the name Grandpa. they said we're going to call you Grandpa. Uh, which is what they still call her today,
1: I love that story,
2: yeah, yeah, it's uh it, you know when we talk about turning points, I talked about the turning point in my life, and I think that was uh as as important of a turning point in my family's life as well, um just to see the way my kids responded makes me it encourages me um that they that they were that way and they still are that way as they get older. I get that yeah,
1: how did you? You spoke to this a little bit earlier, but there was a loss um, How did you grieve the loss of the dad you knew and loved for all those years before decades?
2: Yeah, I think i'm still grieving it i think I think sometimes it's still sad i think I think there's a whole stereotype of what a father son relationship should look like and so I have friends and they're like, yeah, we're doing a dad and son trip. We're going to Alaska to go fishing. And that's a very stereotypical kind of thing. And and yet I feel like pangs of grief over that. Like, well, that's not something I even have the opportunity to do anymore because my dad's no longer here. Oh, wait a second. Let me pick up my phone and call my dad. You know, it's it's this really odd situation that I'm still, I think I'm still grieving it in, in, in ways. Uh, because yeah, like like Paula said, I don't, I don't think Paula is, is the same person my dad was. And, and yet here they are physically. So, uh, it's the one thing that I still can't quite, um, I guess, untangle or navigate. So, yeah. So I think I'm still grieving it. I, I still think I'm at a place where I'm like, wow, I, uh, my, my dad is, is no longer my dad. And yet here's my dad. Uh, and I don't know what to do with it all the time. Uh, again, I think it's these, these steps in terms of resolving my grief. It's, it's being able to, to be honest. And she's always let me be honest Yeah, when I'm angry, when I'm upset, when I'm sad, she, uh, she allows me to, to tell her and she hears it and she receives it. Um, and so that's helpful, but it, it's, like I said, it's an ongoing process.
1: And on the flip side of that, are there things that you, and I imagine there are many, but that you've discovered in your relationship with Paula that we're maybe missing in your relationship with Paul or new and special and unique to you now. If so, what are some of those things?
2: You know, nobody's ever asked me that before. This is the first time. What are those things? It, I think there's more of a friendship. I, I think that's probably true. I think when we talk... Uh, we used to talk as well, I'm the son and I'm going to, to, you know, gather advice from my father. My father's going to tell me the best way to do this and the most practical way to do that. And, and that was a lot of our relationship. And, and I'm, I'm thankful for that because it still happens when I need that to happen. At the same time, I think uh, I think in some ways, we've become friends uh, to where we can share uh, back and forth with one another. We can challenge one another, being that we work in the same profession, uh, we hold one another accountable just to continue to do good work in ministry and so So I think that's been the good part. The good part is is uh you know being more than peers, but being being good friends in this uh, so that's first and foremost
1: Paula. I want to fast forward to a little bit and where you guys are in your lives today. And I know from our earlier conversation and just everything that's out there in the world about you, you are a passionate advocate um, about gender equality in the workplace. And you speak to it from such a unique and important perspective about how men and women are treated not only within the walls of their office, but within the world and sort of juxtaposing that. Can you share some of those experiences with specific examples and that disparity there?
0: It's constant. It's never ending. When I first started speaking to corporations, conferences, universities on this subject, I would usually tell the same stories, five or six very definitive stories about it. And then after a while, I just started telling the story that happened that morning, you know, because it's always there. It is, in some situations, egregious and absolutely maddening, in others, more subtle. But we are, in fact, a society that um, is not equal in any way, shape, or form. And I don't think that, a man can understand that. I said in, in my most recent TED Talk that's not on the air yet, it was live just a few weeks ago. I said, guys, I'm learning things that I don't think there's any way you can learn unless you also transition genders. And so it's um, I find it easy to speak with women because they're like, thank you for validating my experience. I find it more difficult to speak to men. This last TED Talk was to men. And um, they don't always want to hear what I have to say. You know, when I was speaking to men just a couple of weeks ago, I I made just one illustration. I said, um, because I was speaking primarily to those in leadership positions, uh, CEOs and the like. And I said, but you know, some of you out there might say, but I'm not in a leadership position. So what can I do to bring about gender equity? And I said, this one thing would make a huge difference. If in all of your interactions with women, you would assume a woman knows what she's talking about and treat her accordingly. It would make a huge difference. The applause went on and on and on. It is, in fact, I think the biggest issue I face as a female is just being uh, people just assuming that I really don't know anything. And you're always on this knife edge between being too strong and not strong enough. And then if you do speak up, you're just going to be interrupted because it's proven that men interrupt women twice as often as they interrupt other men. And so you finally get to the point you just don't say anything. Plus, men have been encouraged from childhood to think out loud. Boys are taught to be confident. Girls are taught to be perfect. We think we're doing our daughters a favor when we say to them, you've got to fight harder than the boys, so you've got to get a 100 on your test. You can't be happy with a 90. And yet the real world is filled with 90s. And we need to be teaching our daughters not to be perfect, but to be persistent. We need to teach them the same thing we teach our sons, that you need to be good enough. You're already good enough as you are. You don't have to be perfect. It doesn't serve them well in the workplace when they have that perspective. Absolutely. That's why we tell our kids to have the confidence of a mediocre white
2: man.
1: (laughs) I love that. That's about perfect.
2: That's about right. That's what we say.
1: I'm going to steal that one. So authenticity is being... I believe it acknowledged and to a large extent in some instances celebrated or welcomed in a way that has never been before. And Paula, I know that authenticity is a word and authentic is a word that you use a lot. What does authenticity mean to you?
0: Well, I'm not sure exactly what it means to be authentic. I do think I know what it means to live authentically. I think to live authentically is to um, to trust your inner voice. And to trust that it is, in fact, attuned to that which is good and right and redemptive and whole. And that the call toward authenticity is sacred and holy and for the greater good. And so I think we're always moving in the direction of living authentically. And that that is, in fact, I believe, authentic living. Um, I think that the uh, the inauthentic life is um, boring as hell. Uh, I, I it might be safe, but only fifty percent of you has to get out of bed in the morning, and when you get back in bed at night, the fifty percent that never bothered to get up says, "So was it worth it? Yeah, probably not." You know, I mean, I think just bringing all of yourself with you each day is a huge responsibility we have if we're going to leave the world better than we found it.
1: Speaking of that, that's the perfect transition to my next question. I want to talk about where you both are in your life today and what is the work that you care most about in the world now and why. Jonathan?
0: Yeah,
2: it was I think 2013 I I was asked to do a a a talk on diversity, which that's ridiculous. I'm a I'm a straight white man. I have no business talking about that right now and uh I talked about it, and it wasn't done well and A woman came up to me afterwards and, and she said, "You know uh I'm a woman of color, and everywhere I go, whenever I walk into a space, I recognize that I have to give something up um to stay alive in that space or or to be seen in that space and so she said, "When I go into a church uh that's predominantly white, I have to give up some of my Uh, culture and tradition to be in that space when i go to work i have to give up some of myself to be in that space and she said you know what are you giving up what do you give up when you walk into the spaces that you're in and that that has stuck with me uh in the way that i do my work and so the the thing that i think is most important is is challenging people like myself uh, straight white cis men um, to think about what it is that they can give up for the greater good. And when I mean greater good, I mean uh, for people who don't have the same voice that we have. What does it mean to give up a bit of our power uh, so that we end patriarchy? What does it mean to give up a, a bit of our space uh, so that people of color have a bigger voice? What does it mean to challenge systems uh, that continually put people like me uh, ahead or allow me to, uh, you know, to work from third base uh, where other people don't even get that opportunity? So my work uh, centers around that uh, within American Christianity. I want to make sure that in American Christianity that that I use my uh, privilege um, and take some of that and give it to others uh, who don't have the same privilege. So we are a church, like I said, that's LGBTQIA affirming. We do a lot of work to make sure uh, that we're creating safe and inclusive spaces for people who have been kicked out, out of other religious communities. Uh, we're an anti-racist church, which, me- which means we're continually working uh, to see systems that oppress, uh, especially black lives, to see that change. Uh, and we're doing that in and around New York City uh, and anywhere else uh, we see where people don't have voice. Our job is to give some of ourselves up, for me to give some of myself up and to give that voice to others. That's what I'm passionate about doing right now. And that's what I hope we're doing. Yeah.
1: that is could not be more important work to be doing in the world. So it's incredible thanks and Jonathan, as far as where you are today personally, do you think that this experience has changed you as a father and your role as a father?
2: Oh absolutely, absolutely uh you know first off i I have two daughters, and so that's a really big deal uh, and so i think I think the way that I see uh, my father now since she's come out. Uh, in the way that I, I see her operate in the world, I I get I get that secondhand glimpse of everything she's talking about uh, in terms of patriarchy ruling the day, and so for my own daughters, I don't want to see that for them. Uh, I want to see that change, and so it's about, uh, like I said, creating voice for them, finding ways in which uh, in which I decrease so that they can increase, and um, that happens, you know, in sometimes the smallest of ways, and then sometimes just giving them a platform to, to decide what's going to happen in our family for that particular day. But yeah, I, I think that's one of the big ways I've, I've, uh, I've changed as a father. Yeah.
1: And Paula, the same question I asked Jonathan, where you are in your life today and the work that you're doing in the world and why you're doing it.
0: I do feel called to and excited about focusing on gender equity because there aren't many people who have the perspective that I have who have been given the kind of platform that I've been given. And the big idea that I'm sharing most often now is that we will not achieve gender equity by giving women more leadership opportunities. Men, we will achieve gender equity when you're willing to give women your leadership opportunities. And that I think has to be lived out personally as well. So I became one of three co pastors of a new church uh, in Boulder County, Colorado. So there are three of us who are CEOs, co CEOs there. And um, we all three had our areas of responsibility, and our nonprofit is growing, it's thriving. Uh, we're a, a very progressive and, and liberal church in a very uh, liberal county. And so, um, one day, one of my coworkers came to me and she said, you know, it says on paper that we're all co-equal leaders, but in reality, it doesn't work out that way. She said, in reality, your opinion wins every single time. And I realized it was really still all about me. It was all about my work, my agenda, it, that I had brought that male privilege with me. And so I was, I was really struggling. Well, what, what should I do? I mean, how, how can I make this right? I, I was lost, really. And I was talking to one of my very best friends, and she said, well, now that you know you brought your privilege with you, don't you think it might be time to give it up? And I said, and why exactly do I consider you to be one of my best friends? But I, I knew she was right. And so I made the very difficult decision to step down from that leadership spot. And to move from being one of the co-equal lead pastors to being teaching pastor, I think that even in my case, I'm not exempt from abusing the privilege that all those years as a male gave me. And if I'm not willing to give up some of that, then do I really have any right to be speaking at all? So I did step down. That'll take effect uh, December 31st.
1: Wow. So that's happening.
0: Yep. Yes, it is. I'll still be on staff. I'll still be uh, one of the teaching pastors. I'll still speak uh, every other week, but that'll be my only responsibilities there.
1: Jonathan, what do you wish you knew, something you know today, that you didn't at the time of Paul's transition, your father's transition to Paula?
2: You know, I I probably knew that everything was going to be okay eventually, <laughs> I, I just wish I had a timeline for it. There were there were times when I was like, "This is never going to get better," and I think those were times when I I regret my actions, which, like I talked about before, were you know uh, you know basically uh, working to. Uh, keep Paula as an outcast within religious communities, which yeah, something I I deeply regret. And I think, I think if I had known like, okay, this is going to be a four or five year process that you're going to go through and it's going to be really hard. And you're going to learn a lot about yourself and a lot about your dad, and you're going to come out okay on the other side. That would have been really helpful and saved a lot of people pain. It would have saved myself pain. And I think it would have saved Paula some pain as well. So that's the thing I wish. And so Every so often, there'll be somebody who contacts me and says, hey, my parent is transitioning. What do I need to know? And I always say, know that it's going to take you four or five years to figure this all out, and that's okay. Um, But in knowing that, um, know know that it does get better. And, uh, And I'm glad I'm able to say it to others. I wish I had known it for myself.
1: And Paula, what do you wish you knew at that time?
0: I think I wish I had understood that life would go on. Uh, that I would actually have a far more rich life than I had before. I don't think I realized just how um, insular the evangelical culture is. And now when I enter back into that culture, which still happens occasionally, I'm just reminded of how self-referential that world is. And my world now is so much larger, so much broader. And the fact that I'm transgender ain't nothing. But most of the time when I'm speaking somewhere... That's not what the subject is. Most of the time, the subject is either religion, and why does religion behave the way that it behaves in the Western world today? Or the subject is gender equity. I wish I had known that that new chapter was going to be available to me. I don't know if it would have caused me to transition earlier, because I, I think the main reason I didn't transition earlier was because of the, the pain I knew it would cause my family. I, I think it also is true that I didn't want to give up my power or my income.
1: I think to a large extent, and you've said this, you risked your whole life to live in your truth. And a a term that's come up in conversations on this podcast a lot is the notion of standing in your truth and what that really means. What would you say to people who are living in the shadows and afraid to share and stand in their truth, regardless of what that is?
0: Yeah, the truth will set you free, but it's going to make you miserable first. Um, there's a price that you will pay for speaking the truth uh, because it means you're dedicated to knowing what's true. And what's true is not always pleasant. This isn't easy. It's not an easy journey, but it's a good
1: journey. Paula, what do you hope that people take away from your story?
0: That living authentically is worth it, that it is sacred, that it is holy, that it is for the greater good. Um... That I think is is really important for people to understand um, yeah I think that's probably the biggest thing,
1: Jonathan. What do you hope that people take away from your sharing your story
2: uh, you know i I think it goes back uh to what 's good I think we're averse to the the cons, and what i 've recognized through this whole process is that um, all of this is for its intended purpose. It's good. And we don't get to that goodness unless we're willing to go through the dark nights of the soul that come with it. Um, and that's the most important thing for me, um, accepting that. And, and when I'm able to give that advice to others, it's like, yeah, this is going to be uh, beautiful in a ton of ways. And it's going to be the most painful thing in a ton of ways. And, and don't discount the pain. The pain is really good. It's for its intended purpose.
1: I love that. All right. We end all the wiser, always, with a little thing called rapid fire. So I'm going to fire off some questions and uh, you guys can fight over it. Who's going to go first? <laughs> <laughs> um, Paula, you're first. All right. So I'm going to have you both answer it. So Paula and then Jonathan. All right. So the trait you admire most about each other. Paula? Jonathan's love. Jonathan?
2: I uh, I love the, the fact that Paula uh, listens well. She's, she's a, a wonderful listener and takes it all in.
0: Favorite
1: day of the week and why?
0: Sunday, because in my case, I don't do anything on Sunday. Our church meets on Saturday. So Sunday is the day that I can just run or mountain bike or just do nothing because I tend to be a bit of a workaholic.
2: Friday. Friday is my day off. So uh, that's a fun day.
1: Favorite food?
2: My wife is Indian and her mom makes the best food in the world. It is my comfort food and it, it is the food I would eat the rest of my life if I was able to. It's amazing.
0: It's my grandmother's fried chicken, but since she's been gone since 1981, I just find myself constantly on a search for something that gets anywhere near it. Favorite quote? Dag Hammarskjöld, shortly before he died, for all that has been, thanks, for all that shall be,
2: yes. And you know, I have a favorite quote by a philosopher named Montagna, and it's so funny that I'm sitting here and I'm absolutely blanking on it. And if I pulled out my phone, I can give it to you, but I'm too lazy to do that. So we're going to have to go with Paula's.
1: All right. Paula wins. (laughs) Hope for your children
0: that their lives would be full. And their
2: pain would be productive. I, uh, On a broader scale, I believe that my children's generation will be the generation that works to end the divide that we have here in our nation right now. And I see it in my little ones, and my hope is that they continue to bridge that divide by simply being who they are
1: with one another. Amen to that. All right. Thank you both again for being here. You, you're you both um, just so open and honest and beautiful storytellers. And I really appreciate you sharing yourselves with me and our audience. Where can we find both of you and what you're up to in the world? For me,
0: paulastonewilliams.com is probably the best place to find me. Uh, you also can find me at Paula Stone Williams on Facebook and at Paula S. Williams too
2: on Twitter. I am at jonathanswilliams.com and when you're there you should buy my book. It's called She's My Dad um, which Paula contributed to and so that's where you can hear more of our story for sure. We have a couple of those uh, TED Talks where I've, we've done a TED Talk together. That's out there in the world and you can search that as well. And then my church is called Forefront Church in New York City. So we are at forefrontnyc.com if you ever want to stop by, we'd be happy to have you.
0: And my church is Left Hand Church in Longmont, Colorado, lefthandchurch.org.
1: Great. And we will link to everything in the show notes, TED Talks, books, and churches. It's uh, Thank you both. It has been a true pleasure.
2: Yeah, thanks. I thank appreciate you. the opportunity. And I appreciate your questions. I haven't had many of these questions. So this yeah, was good. that
1: was good. As we shared in the open, Paula and Jonathan are truly religious trailblazers. In support of their life-changing work, today's interview supports Left Hand Church in Longmont, Colorado, and Forefront Church in Brooklyn, New York. Both churches are progressive, fully inclusive, and love-filled. As Jonathan's team shares on the Forefront website, and I love this, We are more interested in asking good questions than having all the right answers. To learn more about both of the churches, you can head on over to lefthandchurch.org and or forefrontnyc.com. I hope you learned something new and were inspired by Jonathan and Paula's story. Have a great day, and as always, thanks for listening. All the Wiser is produced by Erica Gerard at PodKit Productions. Our sound engineer is Juan Diego from Harmonix. And our associate producer is Kessie Hollister. Thanks for being a part of the All the Wiser podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast, read the show notes, and get in touch with us at allthewiserpodcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at All the Podcasts. Send us a note. We'd love to hear from you. See you next time. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get
0: 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for 4 dollars each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today